0: Song of Solomon chapter 4. We'll cover chapter 4 and chapter 5, just verse 1 of chapter 5. Again, it's going to be an interesting study. It's going to be about King Solomon and his bride's wedding night. Chapters 1 through 4 have led up to this point. Where Solomon and his and his bride to be were courting, they were you know um, making sure that they were right for each other, and they were doing all the things, all the right things that needed to be done in a couple that's looking to get married. And here in chapter four, now that time has come, they're married. It's their wedding night. And God's word is going to experience this intimate time between Solomon and his wife. And again, it's it's a picture of how it is to be for all husbands and wives. And I pray that again, like I said, that there were more married couples or or, or engaged couples or you know but those that are representing their marriage wonderful that God would use it. Maybe it's for you tonight. Maybe it's for somebody watching. Maybe it's to take the the CD and give it to somebody. But again, uh, that God would bless it and use it for his glory. It's his word. And we teach everything that's in his word from Genesis to Revelation. So we just, we happen to be in the Song of Solomon on Sunday nights now. And we'll just continue to go right on through the Old Testament. But in weddings today, the bride is usually the center of attention. All eyes are on her as she come, makes her entrance and she walks down the aisle up to the front where she meets uh, the man she's going to marry and the pastor's who's officiating. A lot of people, especially the ladies, they're, they're probably looking at what the bride is wearing and there's a lot of oohing and aahing and uh, all of that's going on. But the king here, he's more interested with her own beauty than what she's wearing. He's claimed her for himself. And now it's their wedding night. And she will lay aside her veil as a symbol that now she belongs to him and she has nothing to hide. And in Genesis 2:25 the word says and they were both naked the man and his wife and were not ashamed. So Solomon's speech starts and ends with you are beautiful. And the images that the king uses to describe her beauty, now, they may seem a little strange to us because of different times and different culture. But what we consider beauty changes from age to age and culture to culture. This is the first occurrence in the Song of Solomon of what is technically called a WASF, W-A-S-F. It's a poem of praise where One of the lovers describes metaphorically the other's body parts, listing them from head to toe or vice versa. This type of poem is one of the characteristics of Arabic love poetry, but it's found only in the Old Testament in the Song of Solomon. And in this example, the boy praises in turn his girlfriend's eyes, hair, teeth, lips, temples, neck, and breasts. It only describes the upper part of her body leaving to our imagination how the rest of the body would be described. The images used to describe the different parts of the body seem kind of strange even funny sometimes even unattractive to our ears but the lovers find each other beautiful and attractive. What's being described here is the couple's honeymoon night with some wonderful insights to be received from Solomon and his and his beloved's wedding night. Where do most people learn about sex? Especially in their younger ages. TV shows, magazines, movies, x-rated movies, the internet, and cell phones. Again, most of the most of the info young people get about sex doesn't come to them in a straightforward informational approach. Much less with an ex- explanation as to why a person should wait until they get married to have it and enjoy sex. The public school teaches the, the kids the mechanics about sex. They tell the kids what everything is and how it works. But they're not told about the emotional, <clears throat> the emotional and mental side of sexual intimacy. They're not taught what are the right uh, circumstances for sexual intercourse. Information without teaching them in the moral perspective is like a time bomb just waiting to explode. Waiting for problems. So in the meantime, people's lives are being destroyed emotionally and mentally and physically, scarred for life because they don't know what God's word has to say about waiting for sexual intimacy. In Solomon's day, the tradition regarding marriage was that the formal union of the couple happened in a public area. And then during the wedding reception, the bride and the groom would go off to a designated room where they would consummate the marriage sexually. Here in the Song of Solomon, the bride and the groom were finally alone. They were in the bridal room. And they were there for one reason, and they both knew it. The bride still had on her veil and her wedding covering, which held the veil in place. Now, there are going to be some interesting descriptions in this intimate conversation between these two lovers in their bed. Notice now, as we begin in verse 4, verse 1a, the bridegroom now speaks. He says to her, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. He's telling her, you're beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. So he starts off by telling her she's beautiful. Every part of her. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. In verse 7, he's saying, there's no flaw in you. This is how he feels about his beautiful bride. Notice how Solomon didn't just move right into the physical lovemaking. Someone said, when it comes to sexual intimacy, women are like crockpots and men are like microwaves. <laughs> you know, you, you don't just, guys, they just want to rush into the physical and the ladies want to take the time and become intimate. You know, Solomon knows that this is a special time and it starts in the woman's mind. She gets ready for sexual intimacy through what she thinks and what she feels. And a lot of what she thinks and feels depends on the way that he leads her to think and to feel. He's calming any fears or nervousness that she might have. While at the same time, he's stirring up her passions as he tells her how beautiful and wonderful she is before anything physical has ever happened. He liked what he saw and he told her so. He appreciated her, he treasured her, and he acknowledged her beauty. He built her up, and he told her all of this while looking into her eyes. Notice the second part of verse 1. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. So you see, she's, he's looking into her eyes when he's telling her this. And you can picture in your own mind this wonderful, intimate moment between these two newlyweds, lying in bed, having this sweet, intimate conversation with each other. He touched her emotionally and mentally before touching her physically. Then he moves on to the specific features of her beauty. Solomon goes on to explain in loving detail just exactly what he saw when he looked at his bride. And then he describes seven features about her that just excited him and thrilled his heart and his soul. Just like Adam's reaction when he first saw Eve, Adam said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, Adam was saying, man, you know, I you know he, he was given the job to, to to look at the animals and give them all a name and he was saying hey, all these animals they have a partner and and, and i don't have one and, and and so god puts him in a deep sleep uh, takes away one of uh, his curved sides believed to be a rib and, and creates the woman from the from man's side and, and then he brings her to adam and he sees her and he says again this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh you know, he, he, he's saying, man, here, now here's somebody like me, yet wonderfully different than me. And then in verse 1b, like I said, as he says again, you have dove's eyes behind your veil. When he praises her, you know, her eyes, they're, they're like doves. He praises her eyes like doves. He seems to be saying that her eyes were bright and alert, tender and innocent. Eastern women usually went out wearing a veil. And it was a natural display of modesty for them to hide their faces from the curious eyes of men. So the only thing you could see behind their veils was their eyes. Anyone seeing an oriental woman wearing a veil couldn't help but think what lies behind that veil. Plus the eye is the most revealing part of the body. It's been called the window of the soul. It reflects the love, the hate, the hope, and the fear of the heart. And if you and if you want to know what another person is thinking about, look into their eyes. Because a lot of times you can look at a person and just you see them staring off into the distance, or you know you, you can tell you know what, you know they're, what they're thinking. They're just you know they're just looking out there, and they're in, a, in a, another world. Sometimes Solomon describes his beloved eyes as dove's eyes. Now, if you've ever looked at a dove closely, a dove's eye is perfectly round. And it's the most notable feature on the dove's face. Solomon could hardly take his own eyes off of the eyes of his bride. And again, in the Bible, the dove is a type of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 3.22, we read, And the Holy Spirit descended, in bodily formed like a dove upon him, that is upon Jesus. And as Jesus looks at his bride, the church, what is it that catches his eye? It's the joy of seeing the Holy Spirit living in the believer and expressing himself through the believer's life. I mean, wouldn't it be great if every time the Lord looked at us, he saw the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, of grace and truth, and of wisdom, faith and power shining from our eyes? The next thing that Solomon compliments is her hair. Look at verse 1c. He says your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now again that sounds kind of strange, you know, uh, when when you think about it but you have to look at the culture of that day. He she has now removed the wedding veil. He sees her hair and he says uh, in, a, in a, uh, the golden uh, new, good news translation is your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead now here's the picture now, again he could be caressing her hair now as he's saying these words but the picture that Solomon is painting for us is this as the goats were returning home just before it got dark as they were making their way down the rolling hills of Gilead You know, they came like in a flock and they just flowed gracefully against the mountain. In the same way, her hair was gracefully flowing down over her shoulder and back. Then in verse 2 now, he speaks of her teeth. Verse 2, he says, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. He says, your teeth are as white as sheep that have been recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless and each tooth matched with its twin. In other words, they were all even. She had a beautiful smile. Her teeth were sparkling white and she had all of her teeth. What a a deal in that day. Because, Because here's the deal, without dental care in that day... It was rare for a man or a woman to have white sparkling teeth, much less all of them to boot. So, yeah, he's got a good deal going on, man. They're white, they're sparkling, they're they're all there, they're even. So, again, he's complimenting her on that. And then in verse 3 now, he compliments her lips. He says, your lips are like a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. He says, her lips are like scarlet ribbon. Her mouth is inviting. Her, her temples. Now, the temples, the word temple means the side of the face. All right? So it's most likely talking about the cheeks. But he says, your temples or your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates. And what's the color of a, of a pomegranate? It's rosy. It's pinkish. So he's saying that basically her, her, her face is, 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 is flushed, you know, behind the veil. Uh, her cheeks are rosy like pomegranates. So Solomon looked at his bride's lips and mouth and all he saw was beauty. The Hebrew word for mouth describes it as an organ of speech. And when she spoke beautiful words, they, they, they came out of her mouth. She spoke beautiful words from her mouth. Proverbs thirty-one twenty-seven, twenty-six. 26, Solomon wrote, She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Her speech matched her beauty. But this isn't always the case. You know, there are many attractive women who give themselves away when they speak. Proverbs eleven twenty two. Solomon said, as a ring of gold is in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. But in, in Solomon's case, his bride, when she opened her mouth, it matched her beauty. Solomon's bride had beautiful lips, mouth and her cheeks were flushed with color. Again, the, like a piece of a pomegranate. It was showing her excitement. Verse four, he compliments her neck. He says, "Your neck is like the tower of David, built for an armory, armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men." He says, "Your neck is as beautiful as the tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes." Now, this, this, um, this shields, this, this shields that, 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 that he's talking about here. Um, these were coins that were hammered flat, and they, then they were strung to make a necklace. So it looked like a shield uh, that was strung on a necklace, these little coins hammered flat. They symbolized that she was engaged, and it would tell the other guys, stay away, she's taken. It was like an engagement ring is today. But these coins around her neck, when they were shining in the sun, they would look like an array of shields hanging on a smooth wall of an armory. And the Tower of David was a military structure, and the men in David's army hung their shields on the outside during peacetime. Now, the symbolism here is that it gives the idea of defense. It gives the idea of inaccessibility and intention to keep intruders away. Notice up to this point now, there's been a whole lot of sensuality and romance going on. He didn't just jump right into the physical things. He dealt with her tenderly. He talked to her. He made her feel special and desirable and probably made her feel comfortable. As as he's doing this, he builds a desire for himself in her mind and in her heart. He was being romantic. Verse 5, he speaks about her breasts. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. He started, he starts with her eyes and he's moving downward and now he's getting pretty serious. Verse 6, he says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. So what he's saying here says, before the morning breezes blow and the night shadows flee, he says, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. He said, that, you know, it's saying that they made love all night. The mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense refer to, to his beloved's breast. As Proverbs 5.19 says, As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. The word raptured means intoxicated. And in Proverbs 5.19, Paul was talking about the man having a, 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 an illicit affair with, with, with a prostitute. And he was saying, don't do that. Let, let, let your wife be, be enraptured, be intoxicated you know, with the love of your own wife. So it's saying here that their passion lasted until daylight and they would give their love to each other till the morning. The point is he was intoxicated with the pleasures of his wife. And then the scene closes with Solomon's confirmation of his bride's beauty. What did Solomon say to her after they experienced a night of this this sexual pleasure together? Notice what he says in verse 7 to her. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Again, he tells her, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. There's no flaw in you. He appreciated her. He appreciated her body. He praised the way that she looked. And he let her know that he found nothing wrong with her. There was nothing that he didn't like about her or her body. Now, again, did you notice? I don't know if you counted, but many times when there's things that are enumerated or listed, count them. Because, again, again, did you notice how many areas of her physical beauty he praised? There were seven. Seven areas of her physical beauty. Her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her neck, and her breasts. And seven is the number of perfection. In other words, she's perfect. She's complete to him. She's everything. Now, she may not have been a supermodel like the ones you see on commercials, but to Solomon, she was every bit as beautiful as any supermodel. But you know what? She doesn't, and and, and he tells her. And that's important, he lets her know. So, you know, what she needs to hear more than anything else is that she, she pleases you and as far as you're concerned, she is perfect in your eyes. Solomon is blown away at how blessed he is to have her. And she is more likely to give herself more freely to Him because of what He said to her. And, and we need to remember that that's how the heavenly bridegroom sees us. That's how Jesus sees us. He looks at us, and it Paul said in Ephesians 5.27, He looks at us not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing and without blemish. He sees us like Solomon saw his bride. No blemish, no flaws, perfect. Verse 8. He says, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lions' dens, from the mountains of the leopards. What he might be doing here is calling his bride away from everything in life that might make her worried or insecure about the safety of his love. Or he's urging her to leave her life and to become a part of a new family, which is the relationship that sexual oneness brings. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What Solomon is doing is, verse 8, he's reassuring his bride emotionally, You are safe with me. And that's one of the things that, that men as a husband, we need to ensure our wife, that they are secure in this relationship. They are safe with us and we will protect them from all things. That she has nothing to be afraid of in giving herself to him. Solomon is indicating that he's just as interested in fulfilling her desires as he was in fulfilling his own. Verses 9, verses nine through 11 he says to her you have ravished my heart my cinder, sister my spouse you have ravished my ravished my heart with one look of your eyes with one link of your necklace how fair is your love my sister my spouse how much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices your lips o oh my spouse drip as the honeycomb honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the the fragrance of Lebanon He says, You've captured my heart, my my, my love. You've stolen my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold my heart hostage with just one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. He says, Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your perfume is more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. The colorful language that that Solomon seems to use here or uses here seems to describe their passion as nearly running out of control. Solomon's heart has been captured by his bride or stolen by her. Or he's saying, you have inflamed, aroused, and excited my heart. The bottom line is this. Solomon has been totally bowled over by her. One look is enough to wipe him out. Just one jewel, he says, reflecting from your necklace is enough to make me helplessly in love with you. He's like a hostage. He's been captured by her. He can't help himself. He's totally drawn to her. His mind can't explain it. His love seems to be, in a way, irrational. He's been made weak by her beauty. He's overpowered by her loveliness and her charm. But it's not just his thoughts about her that gets him all excited his touching her and holding her is more intoxicating than wine he's he's saying her perfume is thrilling breathtaking and sends him staggering sight touch and smell all of these things together are working you could say their magical power on 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 her beloved on solomon The reference to her lips dripping sweetness in verse 11 and the milk and honey under her tongue could be a reference to her speech. In other words, her words are sweet, they're gentle, they're smooth, and even seductive. But it's more likely uh, referring to the couple's kissing. Their lips and their mouth come together in, in a wonderful time of sensual kissing. And remember, the land of promise was said to be flowing with milk and honey. So the people looked forward with great expectation to get there to that land flowing with milk and honey and to enjoy the fruits of the land. And their kissing may be a sample of better things to come. The fragrance of her garments also added to her attraction. Now there's, there's possibility of an erotic suggestion here. The delicacy and the flimsiness of the woman's undergarments Sprayed with a fragrant scent, no doubt had an erotic appeal and effect on Solomon. So what she's done, she's made herself attractive and sensual for him. And he continues to move on towards the finish of consummating the marriage, but with a sudden change to the fact that his bride was a virgin. Look at verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. He's saying, you're my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Solomon was saying very clearly that his beloved had never been with another man sexually before. And he's honoring and exalting her purity. Verses 13 and 15. Your plants are an orchard of of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Solomon describes his bride as a a delicious, fruit-filled, spicy garden. She's an orchard or delicious pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Her enclosed garden mentioned here in verse 12 contains all sorts of exotic and fragrant perfumes and spices. She lists them here like henna, spikenard, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, frankincense, myrrh, and aloes with all of the chief spices. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed, verse 12, are both metaphors for the girl's purity only to be given to her husband. It's not available to anybody else. She has kept herself pure and saved herself for only for her love. She hasn't been immoral or immodest or shameful in sharing herself with other men. And he's proud that she hasn't been touched by any other man and that the greatest thing that she could give of herself has been saved just for him alone. Verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its uh, its pleasant fruits. Now she speaks and invites her beloved to to, to enter her garden. The word awake is the same word used when he said, uh, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases in chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 5. Now, in those verses, chapter 2, 7, and 3, 5, it was the call not to have sex before it's the right time, which is marriage. But now, there's no need to hold back. What they waited so long for, they can now do without any reservations because the bride is now ready and she invites her husband to come into the garden and to drink the living waters and to take of its nourishing fruits and he accepts her loving invitation and then he says I have come into my garden they had feasted at the beginning of their relationship in chapter uh, 1 verse 2 through chapter 2 verse 7 but it was nothing The, the beginning of the relationship was nothing like it is now They now had truly tasted the fruits and enjoyed the wine, milk, and fragrant spices. She has freely given given herself to him with this seductive invitation. Come into your garden, my love, and taste its finest fruits. Experience its finest fruits. Come now and experience the pleasures of sexual intimacy. She wants him to be with her and, and to experience her attractiveness. To come to her garden and experience all the wonderful things there for him. And the garden is their mutual possession. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4-5, through 5, it says, the, wife's, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his wife to his body. And under normal conditions, never deprive each other of sexual relations. And we'll look at that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, next week in more detail. In other words, they are just letting themselves go. They're giving themselves to each other for each other to do as they please, to experience total pleasure without reservation, without shame or guilt. And then in Solomon says in chapter five, verse one, notice what he says. He says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my, my wine with my milk. Eat, O oh, friends. Drink. Yes, drink deeply, O oh, beloved ones. Did you notice how many times Solomon said, My? All that she had was his. She belonged to him. And that's what biblical sex does. It makes you one. And again, Genesis 24, 2.24 says, And they shall become one flesh. And, and, and authors have tried to explain what this one flesh is, but, but they can't. But we do know it happens because the Bible tells us that it does. And it's, it's, a, it's something that God does. Makes us one flesh through marriage. And Solomon was totally satisfied with her. And he was expressing total release of his passion. Now he was resting in the pleasure that he had experienced. What he says there in verse 5. I have come to my garden my sis, with my sister, uh, my spouse so he's now resting in that pleasure that he experienced and now he's just wallowing in that bliss and then here in verses one he shouts to his wedding guests notice he shouts to his wedding guests there at the end of verse one he says eat O friends drink yes drink deeply O beloved ones in other words again he shouts to his friends come on eat and drink You see, when sexual intimacy is experienced at the right time, with the right person, it's meant to be enjoyed to the fullest. Sex under any other condition, that is with somebody other than your spouse, it really can't be enjoyed the way it was meant to be, the way God intended it to be. There will be the feeling of guilt, maybe even shame, anxiety, worry, always worry. Will my spouse find out? But when you're with your beloved and you are enjoying that time within the vows of marriage, then sex is meant to be a source of pleasure for both the husband and wife. No guilt, no shame, no regrets. You know, and God wants you to have great and fruitful sexual intimacy. And both husband and wife, you know, should plan for it. And they'll be glad that they did and God will be glorified. God will be glorified. And and, and you know, when I think of that, I I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our marriages in all aspects should bring honor and glory to God. Remember, God, God created marriage. He instituted marriage before the church and the family. He instituted marriage. He gave away the first bride. He brought Eve to Adam. He officiated at the first wedding. Where he said uh, 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 that that a man and a wife shall become one. He said a man is to leave his, his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. And they were both naked and and, um, and and not ashamed. Just showing all the beauty and the purity and the intimacy of marriage. So again, it's something God created, not some something that some so-called caveman did way hundreds or thousands of years ago, so however man wants to look at it. It was a gift from God. Every aspect of a marriage relationship, again, has you know, has scripture and has, you know, what and how we're to use that relationship. Bottom line for God's glory. And, and, hey, we know there are a lot of marriages out there that are hurting. You know, in all areas, not just the physical, but again, the mental and the emotional and, and just, you know, the faithfulness. God needs people in the body of Christ that can share and they can be great witnesses. You know for those who are hurting father we thank you so much for this chapter lord in the song of solomon father we father we it's such a blessing because many times we just we think of the the, the bible as as a religious book and it is but it covers so many things in life god it's a science book. It's a book on finances. It's a book on love. It's a book on family, on raising children. It's a book on marriage and on sexual intimacy as we've seen, Lord. So, Father, may we look to your word, God, for all of the things that we need to know, God. Because it is a, it's the instruction book of life. It's the manual for living, Father. And whatever we need to know, we can find it in the scriptures, Lord. So, Father, let us be anxious and excited, God. Anxious in an exciting way to get into the word and to see what you have there for us, Lord. So, Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. And we thank you for this wonderful word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.